Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, analysis of the Biden administration's messaging as Russia invades Ukraine and the United States marshals its allies and partners worldwide in response. But first, joining me to discuss this invasion and what it means across the Pacific and specifically in the messaging the administration is sending to deter China in its expected move on Taiwan over the next couple of years is my good friend, Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Uh, Patrick, thanks so very much for joining us. And uh, I know the audience is doubly satisfied that they're going to get a dose of you in a more focused one-on-one and then tomorrow again as part of our roundtable. Well, thank you very much, Vago, and the audience will also be able to enjoy your excellent editorial as well as your commentary. Thank you very much. That's very, very kind. This is this is the great mutual admiration uh, society, so I appreciate that. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Unfortunately, in the last 24 hours, uh, Vladimir Putin has decided to invade Europe's second largest country, uh, Ukraine, and it appears that the uh, invasion is well underway. Some 200,000 Russian forces involved air, land, sea, uh, space, cyber uh, with uh, kinetic uh, strikes. There is uh, There are reports, obviously, uh, from Ukrainian leaders that there could be decapitation moves uh, over the next uh, overnight um, in order to uh, eliminate the Zelensky government and install a puppet regime uh, in uh, in Moscow that will uh, obviously be somewhat less democratic uh, than the country is today. Everybody is focused on what Russia is going to do, and obviously the president's uh, announcement of additional economic measures and sanctions against uh, Russia, which are significant. We're going to talk about that later in the program. But I wanted to get your sense specifically on how the Chinese are viewing this. You know, you joined us on the program and for weeks we've been talking about, uh, and indeed months and years about the closer uh, partnership and budding alliance between these two uh, countries. Right before the Olympics started, there was obviously the agreement between uh, that there would be effectively no daylight, that they would support each other. Um, How is China viewing all of this? Because China has been very cautious in the statements that it's been making. Well, China's viewing it at multiple levels. They are obviously interested in rewriting the post-World War II system, but doing so in a way that is most uh, sort of congruent with Chinese interests. Uh, And they're taking a long view of that, Uh, whereas Russia seems to be in a bigger hurry to uh, sort of enact its revisionism, uh, try to recreate the Soviet empire, starting with Ukraine. And um, as a result, um, you know, China's both uh, wary and very keenly watching uh, what's happening. One interesting thread, uh, not necessarily the most important one, that uh, is similar to both Moscow and Beijing's behavior is sort of the language. Um, How Moscow and Beijing talk about what's happening uh, is very different from the way we talk about it or the way the West talks about it. Um, For Putin, of course, this isn't even a war, or if it is a war, it was one that Ukraine uh, sort of launched on Russia. We know that's not the case. you know, he talks about denazification by trying to take out uh, the Jewish president uh, Zelensky, um, which is, uh, you know, Orwellian uh, in all of its aspects. Um, and Beijing, meanwhile, and their Ministry of Foreign Affairs has been equally Orwellian uh, in its language about both the run up to this conflict and, and even events right now. So they downplayed the tensions uh, in, in Moscow's military maneuvers. They said that the United States was being hysterical and drumming up war. 
And then they use this sort of dangerous circular logic that um, Putin's not going to attack unless you provoke him. Oh, he attacked, therefore you provoked him. Uh, but it's still not even war and they're watching it and they want restraint um, and they're urging restraint all around. All of that is a bunch of nonsense. Uh, China has given no veto over Moscow and in uh, all sort of operational aspects, it does seem in retrospect that China has gone along with Moscow's very aggressive moves. I find it hard to believe that the Chinese did not know that Putin was seriously uh, positioning himself to be able to take aggressive military action against Ukraine. Um, and the fact that it didn't launch until a full day after the end of the Olympics further suggests some complicity. And the fact that the president of the United States had to say that he was not able to clarify whether he could urge China to not support, not to bail out Russia in particular with economic support uh, and to actually join on some sanctions, not that China is going to do that. But the fact that he couldn't answer that question suggested to me the president uh, is very frustrated and angry, really, with Beijing, that Beijing is giving succor to uh, Moscow and to Putin, and that this relationship, which has solidified over the last couple of decades, uh, has really become a de facto alliance. You mentioned uh, what the administration would like. I mean, the trouble with this is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And ultimately, both of these powers uh, have a lot in common. They're making extraterritorial arguments, right? In the case of, well, Taiwan isn't really isn't a sovereign state. It's a it's an integral part of China. Um, it's a nation that falls outside of uh, what is seen as sort of a gray area. Uh, obviously, the president of the United States twice has said we have an obligation uh, to uh, defend uh, Taiwan. You and I are among those who agree who agree that that is was deliberate uh, and and not a slip of the tongue on the president's part. Um, you know, where, you know, and you can make the same case that the United States had an agreement to defend or at least be a guarantor for uh, Ukraine's security, as we've discussed, uh, as we've discussed on the program. How how does this, um, you know, anything that the Chinese have done uh, in the last uh, a day and a half, two days, three days, uh, Patrick, that indicates how China will behave? Because in China, there is a sense that that Putin feels like he has a get out of jail free card, especially that 120 uh, billion dollar gas and oil deal the two countries struck recently. And the new sanctions that are being imposed on Russia will not allow Putin to sell uh, oil uh, in dollars or or, or pounds or, or yen uh, or euros. And as a result, um, he's even more dependent on Beijing for his economy. Um, so whether it's the Chinese now buying up more wheat and agricultural products, buying all their oil, uh, providing maybe the semiconductor chips that are going to run uh, in short supply very soon here in, in Russia. Um, you know, Moscow is totally dependent on Beijing going forward as things now stand. Um, in fact, one wag joke that, uh, you know, uh, Moscow and Russia were like the second errant little brother uh, along with North Korea um, because they were a total economic dependency. That's overstating it. Russia is a bigger power than that. Uh, but at the same time, it does suggest that uh, Russia is uh, into a corner. The rest of the world, um, and only India, is the only other big power to be on the sidelines at the moment. Uh, and we saw the president say that we had further work to, to be done with New Delhi. At the same time, um, India is not supporting Russia. They're just reluctant to condemn uh, Russia, whereas China really does seem to be giving them an economic way out here. You know, it goes back to your original question, though, that, you know, is China wary of what's what Putin's doing? Of course they are. They don't want instability. Um, they don't want at least a, a large degree of instability. So if Putin can successfully install a puppet regime 
you know, in, in 48 hours and not have to fight an, a, an awful insurgency and not bring down the international economic order, um, you know, China will go along with that. If, on the other hand, Putin forces a major geopolitical fault line to shift, um, it's possible she will roll the dice and go along with that and say, this is our time. You know, we're, we've achieved a great deal of power um, and I want to uh, move on Taiwan. Um, that's still not likely, but it's, it's, you know, unfortunately we're in a period when things have changed again. We have had another sea change in just this last 48 hours because Moscow is willing to use force to revise the map and, and the security architecture China may have to go along with that uh, as the least worst option. I don't think that's what China's going to do. And China will not only prevaricate and use all of the disinformation and the Orwellian language that I, I've talked about, just as Moscow is, but they're not going to use just the cruelest uh, brute force tools that, that Moscow is using. They have a bigger toolkit uh, in terms of their economic power. They're the number one trading partner, all these countries. So they, they have a lot of leverage that Moscow did not have. So that's why Putin jumps to veiled nuclear threats or not so veiled, um, because that's what he has. Uh, Beijing has a lot of other tools that are largely economic uh, in orientation and the future economy of the region of Indo-Pacific depends on it. So Beijing doesn't wanna jeopardize all of that the way Putin can jeopardize what were fairly fragile relations anyhow with the West. Um, I want to bring a wider uh, sort of Pacific view of, of this crisis. As you said, right, China is the number one trading partner of each and every uh, single country in, in, the, in the Pacific, whether that's Japan, whether that's South Korea, whether that's Australia, and indeed, right, China's economic uh, and, and ruthless economic targeting, whether on Australian beef or wine uh, or, or, you know, limiting rare earths to Japan has a tendency of, of having tectonic effects. We've seen the G7 uh, agree to sanction uh, Russia, uh, in, you know, whether the trade is in dollars, in yen, uh, in euros, uh, or, or in, in pounds. How are Pacific Asia, that our, our partners in the Indo-Pacific uh, looking at this? I mean, leaving, I guess, India out, which is, which is still a work in progress, uh, as, as the president uh, indicated. Um, you know, what, because, but, you know, that said, New Delhi has significant problems with, with Beijing as well, right? And, and can't be looking at this as a positive, uh, given that, that uh, you know, border skirmishes have turned deadly over the past couple of years. What, wh how, how is everybody else in the Asia Pacific seeing this, um, you know, Russia's invasion and what it potentially means for them and what it means for them vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese? Well, uh, all the actors are different, but our main treaty allies in the Indo-Pacific, and especially Japan, Australia, but also South Korea, uh, I would add uh, probably the Philippines, although it's more complex. Um, Thailand, it's harder to say. Uh, Singapore, kind of a quasi-ally, uh, definitely, are all deeply opposed to what Russia has done uh, and deeply concerned about the potential great power rivalry and the consequences in the Asia Pacific as a result of this. They know that the economy will be hurt. Um, they fear that uh, US-China relations could be undermined. I know Admiral Jim Stavridis had a, a very sensible piece in the uh, Nikkei Asia today, arguing that this could actually end up being a, a positive for US-China because China is so concerned about instability. I think that's too optimistic at this point. Um, I, I hope, I hope he's right. Um, but I don't think we know at, at this point. I think it's just too early to say. Uh, I could see relations getting worse uh, with China as a result of this as, as, as much as I can see them getting any better. 
uh, in Asia Pacific. But you can be sure that a lot of Asian countries will be trying to work with China. Uh, and it may be one of the reasons why the president was mute about the relationship with China, because he's hearing from other allies saying, be careful about China. Don't push them into backing Moscow. Uh, let's see if we can work with Xi Jinping to uh, slowly uh, try to uh, contain the damage. Um, and while Putin uh, is, you know, we haven't seen the end of his antics here um, or his brutality, um, I think President Biden has already, you know, seen the cast, uh, seen the future, and he's he knows that he's going to put in place a stronger NATO alliance, stronger sanctions for the long term on Moscow. But yes, he may be holding his fire on exactly what this means for relations with China, including third party sanctions. Um, and, you know, because there's just too much, too much um, uh, bound to our economy and to the economy of our allies and partners, um, specifically about Asia Pacific. So in Australia, you have an election coming up in late May. It's going to be a hotly contested election. Prime Minister Morrison is playing the hawk uh, and, the, and the Labour Party may veer a bit, a bit to the left on, on China. So that's a divisive issue. Uh, the economy and COVID will be big issues uh, domestically for, uh, for the Australians. You had uh, conservative Peter Jennings writing in The Australian Today um, saying, look, this is a wake up call for Biden and Biden's chance because, you know, he and his uh, Ivy League uh, sort of uh, house, uh, White House staff, uh, good friends of mine, uh, are, are uh, you know, are, are not in an Ivy League seminar. They're in a knife fight here with Putin. And he has to understand that. And I think I think the president does get that. Um, and then um, and I think that's that's pretty much the mood in the at least in Canberra with with the current Morrison government um, in uh, Japan under Prime Minister Kishida, he was foreign minister when uh, Putin annexed Crimea, and he saw the weak, relatively weak response. He's actually leaning forward, even though a number of people I respect who follow Asian economy very well said, "Oh, he'll be very careful and not not go too far." Yes, the Japanese will always be more careful than Washington, but I think I think Kishida in Japan will be harder line on this issue than they've been in the past. Um, in South Korea, Moon Jae-in has only a couple of weeks before the election. In May, there'll be a new president. So much really depends on the election more than Moon's policy, but, but Moon nonetheless has come out in favor of sanctions, even while his democratic uh, party uh, in, uh, is in favor of uh, carefully protecting the South Korean economy, which is sort of code word for don't be too hard <laughs> on, on the sanctions. Um, and then you get throughout other Southeast Asia, the ASEAN countries, the 10 Southeast Asian countries, if you want to look at them as a block economy, they're all hedging. They, they're, that's what they do for a living. They hedge and, and they weave because they're trying to protect themselves from the, the larger geopolitics here. So they'll be doing some of that, even while all of them are concerned about sovereignty and all of them will be at least on the record opposed to what Russia has done. I have to bring in uh, the question of where are Asian uh, allies and partners uh, are in the wake of the president's statement about cutting off technological supplies uh, to the Russians. Uh, there was, uh, you know, earlier this week, there was a discussion, I think you and I talked briefly about it, about whether or not uh, the administration would move, which means coordinating with Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan to limit the flow of uh, cutting edge chips uh, to Russia. Is that what this means? Um, have our allies and partners, whether they're in Singapore or across the region, uh, have made that decision, and what then does that mean uh, for them, especially if the Chinese get involved on behalf of the Russians? 
uh, in on, on this? Well, I, th I think where the semiconductor chips are made, certainly in Taiwan, Korea, Europe, United States, um, they are all on board with cutting off that kind of technology to Russia, I suspect, after the president's diplomacy and after his speech. Um, you know, how long will that, that hold? That's a good question, especially with a country like Korea and what's the next government. Um, but at the same time, uh, China uh, will put a lot of pressure to backfill, presumably, and help and help Russia. Um, and, uh, you know, the system also leaks in, in terms of getting those export uh, restrictions and force is, is another matter. You can announce them. But do you really know what's being sold where every, every, everywhere um, is a big block market, in other words? Um, I think also you have um, a, a deeper concern in Asia uh, about new export control policies that cleave uh, the world into two blocks. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to deny Russia after invading Ukraine um, sensitive technologies. It's another putting Russia and China into a camp and saying we're back into a Cold War and we have a big and bad uh, export control regime. And I think that's where we're going to lose. Uh, and we don't have uh, the fidelity of support from India and from uh, Southeast Asian countries that, that we might like. Um, I, I should uh, point out to the world that even though Beijing keeps repeatedly saying we can't fall into uh, a Cold War mindset, you know, we can't go back to those uh, years. Effectively, that's exactly where we are going, uh, in part because of the actions of these two global provocateurs. I want to ask you one last question, and we can talk about this a little bit more tomorrow. Is the fact that both of them are somewhat empowered, that we have sort of acquiesced to the to Moscow sometimes and to Russia, some, excuse me, to Moscow sometimes and Beijing sometimes in our effort to try to keep them separate, right? It, it, was that a factor in actually mitigating or minimizing or dampening somehow the punishment we would have meted out to either one of these guys? And as a consequence now, after a couple of years, you find out you, you sort of empowered both of them in trying to make sure that they don't get together. And in the end, you empowered them and they ended up getting together. Well, it's a complicated question, but, you know, historically, Vago, since the PRC was created in 1949, um, you have had ups and downs, significant sways uh, in uh, Sino-Russian relations. And, you know, the 1950 alliance treaty that was struck was, was quickly walked away from in some ways from the Chinese, um, so much so that we actually saw the ideological split after Stalin uh, and then eventually we capitalized on it by uh, essentially having a soft alliance with China uh, to end the Cold War. Um, and it wasn't until 2002, Putin's back in power. They signed a friendship treaty, but it's not an alliance. Um, and it's really in 2012 when Putin um, starts to pivot to Asia. He annexes Crimea in 2014. Xi Jinping is now in power. He shares a common a global revisionist agenda. Uh, and as a result, that keeps solidifying. We were wary of putting them in the same alliance and, and alignment because we didn't want to drive them together. We don't want this sort of two strategic front conflict, this global sort of challenge. But now we really have no choice. Would it have been different if we had grouped them together? Not necessarily. I think each of them uh, is a big power. Each of them has very strong views uh, of his own, Xi and Putin. Um, and uh, we may have really had no alternative. And it was still, even now, as we began this discussion today, 
be a mistake to sort of say they really share a complete identical agenda. They don't. They have some very strong conflicts of interest, but right now those are uh, papered over by the fact that they are taking on the American-led system. That's uh, to the benefit of both. Meanwhile, Moscow's actually putting lives on the line. China's watching closely, doesn't want to disrupt that, um, but will be also very careful about it going too far in sowing instability, especially in this year of the 20th Party Congress when he's supposed to begin his third five-year term in power. Um, let me, and we've got about 30 seconds left. Let me ask you this question. Xi Jinping seems to be turning increasingly inward. Uh, that's something which Putin also has been doing. Is that a little bit like Putin recognizing the world is arraying against them and then he's actually going to try to sort of hunker down and retrench uh, at home? You know, in so many ways, we've gone from globalization to deglobalization. We've gone to fragmentation, decoupling, uh, populism, uh, you know, autocracy. Um, all of these are, trends are largely negative that we've seen, and, and Putin and, and Xi Jinping uh, are responsible for a good deal of them. Um, they are both turning more inward. We've also turned more inward, and that's a dangerous sign for the world because if we're not out there helping to bring together uh, an international community for rules of the road and for values and interests that are congruent with ours, then we'll end up with uh, even a more chaotic, anarchic, uh, and negative world. So, um, you know, it's, it is a more dangerous, difficult world, but let's not go too far with that. Even, even Putin's actions, as aggressive and as you know, the naked power, uh, President Biden put it very well, talking about Putin's war, uh, and, and um, you know, Despite that, he's still just in Ukraine at the moment, right? On the other hand, I heard Fiona Hill yesterday make a very strong argument why you know, this rhymes very much with Hitler's actions uh, and isn't really so different in terms of the kinds of things Hitler started to do. So I don't think Putin had the same ambitions of Lebensraum, he's, but he's already got his empire kind of defined in his mind. Uh, it's, it's still a very, very dangerous world. And the fact that China's running away from the rules-based approach here and allowing Putin to do this is a very bad sign. Uh, and uh, to point out, and, and uh, maybe we can end it here, right? Uh, when asked, do you expect Putin to go beyond uh, Ukraine? The president gave a one word answer. Yes. Uh, and the concern is that that place would be Moldova, uh, for example, where once you take Ukraine, it's just on the other side of the border. Yeah. I mean, Vago, the critical thing here is stopping Putin is the most and the only important task we have in many ways, because this going unchecked is untenable for the international order, period, Asia and Europe. Uh, Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. Really uh, appreciate it. Look forward to the conversation tomorrow, and we're going to be focusing on exactly that question, uh, because at this point, right, sanctions didn't stop Vladimir Putin from invading, and it is unclear whether sanctions are going to stop him from executing whatever plan he, he wants to do, uh, which, is, uh, which is why I'm, I think, one of many voices are saying, you know, we, we need to discuss and identify Putin for what he is. He's an enemy. He's not just a competitor and, and, uh, and, and treat him very much as such. Patrick, thanks so much again and look forward to having you on again tomorrow. My pleasure, Vago. Thank you. And a quick word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. And joining us now is our very own producer, Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy commander uh, and former public affairs officer, who is also a co-founder of the Provision Advisors uh, PR firm. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Baga. 
wanted to uh, sort of get your sense, right? I mean, sort of zero the needles. We've been talking, all, you know, almost every program on uh, Russia's uh, invasion, right? The anticipation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And last night, uh, many people will remember just as they did in 1991 or in 2003, or unfortunately, any one of a number of other conflicts uh, that uh, the, the bombing started live on TV shortly after Vladimir Putin gave the order for a special uh, military operation tonight. Unfortunately, there is a sense that uh, the Russians, uh, which are in Kiev uh, or Kiev, as uh, Ukrainians pronounce it, right. uh, going to going to be unfortunately rounding up that government probably. Uh, from from your standpoint, though, how's the president and the administration doing on messaging at a at a base level uh, in this crisis? I think they're doing very well. Um, you know, the president publicly has been presidential. I mean, and that that's what you want from a uh, head of state. And I think he's been coordinated with uh, our European allies. And that's been, you, you know, I, I think reassuring uh, to, to the degree that it, it, it can be right. I mean, it's hard to, ju- you know, words uh, only go so far when there are bombs falling in uh, Kiev and, and, and elsewhere in Ukraine. Um, but to the degree that he is using the, you know, the power of the office and the power of the pulpit, uh, I think he's been very, very effective in making sure that the world understands that this type of uh, action is unacceptable uh, and that Western democracies uh, will do what they can um, to support Ukraine. Now, I would say, and, and you and I went back and forth on this, I think where they have really excelled is in their uh, transparency and willingness to share um, ahead of time and in real time uh, what they expect and what they're seeing from the Russians uh, um, as a way of countering propaganda and as a way of making sure that the world knows exactly what is and isn't happening. Um, you know, they're really taking advantage of the benefit that digital media gives the good guys in countering the narrative of the bad guys. Uh, and and obviously, right, I mean, there are some concerns about whether or not they're actually compromising sources and methods. Uh, but uh, the administration's argument is we're not compromising sources and methods. There are a lot of ways that we're doing this. And indeed, you know, if, if you just even look on social media, the wealth of information that's available on it. I mean, is that a legitimate concern as somebody who's seen some pretty classified information in, in your day? I mean, where where does that line fall? Because from their perspective, Right. Is, is the risk worth the reward ultimately? Well, I think in this case, it's absolutely worth the, the reward. Um, I, I don't I mean, you know, again, I, I'm not in the uh, not in the meetings uh, at the Pentagon, but um, my sense is, is that what they're really doing is hurting the cats. Right. So, I mean, there's this sort of, you know, healthy tension between uh, communicators and and journalists and and that you know if, if as a communicator you provide information to journalists you can kind of herd them and help them get to the right story that benefits both sort of the institution and the the journalist goal versus just sort of leaving them out on their own to to find uh, you know the story and and rely on what may be less reliable sources so in this case. I think the, the the administration, DOD, the State Department, uh, or I should say the White House, DOD and State Department are trying very hard to provide that information, not force the media to go out and find it and sift through what is propaganda and what isn't. Um, so I don't think we've even really uh, brushed up against the sources and methods issue. I, I think they're just being um, very smart and very diligent uh, and, and trying hard to take away what would be, you know, the uh, the half truths and the propaganda that we're likely to continue to see from the Russians. 
Are, are we making progress on that, though, when uh, I mean this as apolitically as I can mean it, but um, um, th there are some on television, right? Let's use the, the word name Tucker Carlson, for example, at Fox, who are really, um, and, and indeed some conservative Republicans, much to the chagrin of other Republicans, and indeed, uh, you know, my close circle of friends uh, is composed mainly of Republicans, uh, are, are very troubled to see such prominent voices sort of parroting Kremlin talking points. Do you think that we're making any breakthrough at all in sort of the national debate and fight against disinformation, um, you know, at a time when our allies or partners have actually really been stepping up their game, whether it's Scandinavian countries, whether it's the Baltics, whether it's France, uh, has done a much better, they've done much better jobs at countering these sort of false narratives. How, how do you feel that that effort is going in the United States? I think the first step to doing that is, you know, the, the tactical level nug work type communication that you're seeing from the White House, DOD, and um, the State Department, right? So um, I, I'm not sure that they have the ability to rein Tucker Carlson or, or others in, um, but I think the, the first steps and, and the levers that they can pull, they're, they're certainly taking full advantage of. Um, you know, what one would hope that through, um, you know, viewers making their own choices and through sort of objectively deciding not to provide aid and comfort to the enemy. And, and I mean, let's make no mistake about it. I don't think that's a political um, term. I, I mean, by giving the the bad guy, in this case, Putin, um, you, you know, the soundbite, the thing that he needs to help his cause back at home, you are providing aid and comfort to the enemy. So hopefully the, the American viewer and, uh, you know, Fox News viewers and others decide that they'd rather be on the on the good guy side, if you will, than, than on, on the bad guy side. So, I mean, there's only so much the administration can do, but I think to the degree that they're doing everything they can, I, I think it's a positive step. Uh, and uh, right, we live in a democracy and there's freedom of speech and he happens, right. has a big megaphone and he's, uh, you know, can can say what he wants. And if people want to believe it, uh, you know, that that can be very problematic. Right. That's a broader discussion than anything you and I are going to have uh, today. Um, you track uh, you know, just a couple of more uh, minutes that we have together. Um, you, you're tracking very closely the social media feeds. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm not particularly crazy <laughs> about social media. So thankfully, I work with somebody like you who's very good at, uh, at tracking it. Is, is there a change in the narrative in terms of people's understanding and appreciation of the challenge and the problem that, that Russia uh, poses? I mean, I did write an editorial today that, that noted um, that we should treat Russia for what it is. Um, it is an enemy. It's not a competitor. It's not an adversary or a potential adversary. Uh, it's an enemy who's made his intentions uh, clear, uh, not just through his uh, rhetoric, but also his demonstrable actions. Uh, and we should deal with it as such. Are, are you noticing a change in the nature of the debate, the nature of the discussion, the toughness of the rhetoric, right? I mean, everybody applauds what the president is doing, but everybody's also afraid that we're going to just Swiss cheese our sanctions, as we've always done, because we don't want to incur costs on the United States, uh, on our allies and partners. And eventually, Putin knows, you know, I, I can wait this out. I can hold my breath until this wave goes over me, because uh, I practiced doing it. I've stored an oxygen bottle under the wave. Do you notice a change in, in the sort of fundamental texture of the discussion that we have to do this here? Otherwise, we have an even bigger problem with China, for example, or again, downstream with Putin? 
I don't know that it's um, it's that complex, uh, and I don't know that you're able to see that it's that complex just yet. I, I would just say that in the you know the feeds that I try to monitor, and I try very hard to monitor across the political spectrum, and and you know have a a, a good uh, smattering of you, you know geopolitical thought leaders on on both sides of the aisle. I think there is a there is more willingness to give the administration the benefit of the doubt, at least here in the, you know, th this last week. I mean, there are cert still certainly people that want to criticize that there wasn't enough done and that you know sanctions would never gonna were never gonna work. And because of Afghanistan, this is why we're here. But particularly in the last three to four days, I think you've seen a little bit more uh, space given to the White House and given to the administration. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know that you can read too much into it. I think the first indicator of that will be, you know, the next time they do a, a poll on the president's approval rating, you know, it does his approval rating go up. Um, but I mean, if, if digital media in this environment that we live and work in has taught us anything, the White House has a, has a short um, window in which it, it has to grab onto the narrative, keep the narrative and and make people that are influenceable there in the middle, if, if there are any still left, let them know that they have their arms around this problem or else they're going to be consumed in the kind of typical political mire that we've seen over the last couple of years. So, I mean, that's a long answer to, you know, essentially how are things going on Twitter? Um, it's still too early to draw big conclusions, but I think people want the president uh, and the West to handle this in a way that um, that that stops, um, you, you know, Vladimir Putin uh, and and helps the Ukrainian people. Are we um, last question? Are we primed and properly positioned for something that is not going to be over in days? But that this is something that's going to play out over months no. and and years. Have, has the administration laid that groundwork? Um, because there are, there are concerns that they may issue actually a remarkably tone deaf national defense strategy that's all focused on China, but somehow overlooks uh, Russia. I know that everybody is working very hard, so I'm not criticizing anybody. This was a little bit like the uh, Bush administration was working, you know, its national defense right. strategy, and all of a sudden we had 9/11 and we had to re rewrite things. Um, ultimately, do you, do you, are we where we need to be, given that we are at the beginning of the beginning? The short answer would be is I, I don't know. But I would say that at some point, both the audience, uh, the broader American, and I would you, you know hazard to guess the broader Western audience is going to lose a bit of interest in this, right? So if um, you, you know, if the bombs start stop falling to the degree that they did last night, and this turns into you know what we saw out of Iraq and Afghanistan or any um, you, you know kind of post digital conflict, uh, you know what we saw in Libya or you know pick any conflict, I, I think that you're going to see the audience get bored, um, and and you know candidly, I think you're going to see the White House get bored, right? I mean there is a there is still important budget decisions to be made. There is a, a Supreme Court. Uh, nominee that they want to roll out here in the next week. There is a state of the union. So, I mean, the, the news cycle is going to move on. The question is, is that can they keep the audience and can they keep um, all of these issues kind of tied close enough together so that from a narrative standpoint, they keep the upper hand and it doesn't turn into, oh, they're not focused on Ukraine. They're focused on this or they're focused on that. That's the challenge for any White House to have to deal with um, in, in today's media environment. 
Well, I, what I think is interesting is that there appear to have been a lot of lessons learned um, since the Afghanistan uh, debacle. Uh, and um, the, the, the problem is on this, as you know, Chris, Americans will be reminded of higher costs every time they pull up to a gas pump or every time they go to the supermarket, right? Yeah, they, they will. And that's, I mean, you, you know, that's that sort of consumer uh, cost index that whether it's formal or informal, the moment they, they're going to make their own decisions and their own value judgment based on how this conflict affects them, in addition to what they see on TV. So that that's the real challenge for any White House is to is to navigate uh, through that. Oh, by the way, you have a contentious middle uh, midterm election coming up. Oh, by the way, you have a former president and sort of martyr in chief uh, out there, you know, adding to the the media churn. Um, it's a tough uh, it, it's a tough environment to navigate. Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess the key in that is make sure that the the ire always gets directed at Vladimir Putin uh, as as opposed uh, as opposed to Joe Biden. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure uh, having you on. Thanks for the great work. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.